Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hello, friends. Welcome back. Today's show, When the Doctor Gets the Cancer. Dr. Beverly Savaleta, board-certified family physician, cancer survivor, fellow upstate New York Ithacan where I went to college, and advocate for breast cancer, which is what she got, triple negative breast cancer, which is not when negative is a positive. Oh, it's triple negative. It's got to be the good one, said no one ever. She is straight up no bullshit, no nonsense, Gen Xer, and I had a fabulous chat with her. Her book is Braving Chemo, What to Expect, How to Prepare, and How to Get Through It, available wherever books are sold. Enjoy the show. All right, Beverly, you're in the hot seat. Welcome to the show. Great. My buns are warm already. I love it. I'm going to start with a gotcha question. It's, it's really self-serving. Great. Your book, which we'll discuss, Braving Chemo, um, what to expect, how to prepare, and how to get through it, if you can get through it, that is. We'll discuss the asterisk of your byline, of course. You have a <laughs> comprehensive resource guide in the back, and I look through I know all the organizations. Fantastic job culling all, all this information. However, you're, you have omitted an organization that is quite near and dear to my heart. It is the one that I founded in 2007, the country's largest young adult cancer group, Stupid Cancer. Yeah. So um, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm forcing you. I'm, I'm forcing you to a second edition. Yes, yes that's right. I, I think um, this is just a matter of uh, I had. Uh, I'm just I'm just busting your ass. Yeah. Don't worry. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, so, so I kid you not. What happened as soon as it went to press was organizations kept popping up in my social media feeds and people kept reaching out to me. And so the list just kept getting longer and longer and longer. I was like, oh, dang it. I need to put that one in. And so I have this totally inefficient method of (laughs) emailing myself um, because if I don't do that, then it's just sticky notes all over the house and in my car of what I need to add to the next edition. So emailing myself at least is like sticky notes that all go in one place. And so I just, I have these just three years worth of emails to myself of resources that need to be added to the second edition. It's crazy. So yeah, stupid cancer high on the list of, of what has to go in the second <laughs> right. edition. It's crazy. All right. Ass busted for part one of 95 of this okay, conversation. I'm, I'm ready. I'm up for it. I want to talk about your origins in medicine because they weren't origins in medicine. You have zoology in your background. What the hell is that about? <laughs> I mean, I know what it's about, but how did that yeah. happen? So funny story. When I was growing up, um, both my parents were interested in, in science. They were kind of um, granola, nature-loving type people. And so I um, 
I got into interested in science as well. And I, when I went to college, I thought I was going to go to veterinary school. So that was a major that made sense. I was doing my prerequisites, studying. I took a class in college. I believe it was called something like comparative vertebrate phylogeny or something kind of, you know, uh, obscure. That was actually one of the hardest classes I ever took. I mean, it was a butt kicker. And um, yeah, nobody knows what that is, right? And then I, I realized after I worked in a couple of, I had some part-time jobs. I worked for, I think, three different veterinarians over a year and a half. And then I realized I I didn't want to be a veterinarian. <laughs> so, so I had to pivot. And so then I spent a couple of years exploring and thinking about different options. I, I worked uh, different jobs. I'd volunteer. I mean, there was a whole long convoluted path after that. Yeah, I, I did a lot of spelunking, of course, and I also saw anthropology. I fancy myself a closet anthropologist because I just like to look back and say, how the hell did all this happen? Yeah. Uh, are you the same way? Well, I think so. It, it was uh, anthropology. I took some culture, cultural anthropology, and then I took a lot of biological anthropology, which looks even farther back to prehistorical anthropology and bones and primate societies and things like that. And of course, humans are one of the branches of the primate group. And you can learn a lot about our behaviors and our modern day cultures by watching primates. And so we're talking Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey, Gorillas in the Mist, all that stuff. So that's what I studied in college as well. You know, I didn't know it at the time, but a lot of that learning and observing and reading and research it has come in handy as a doctor. <laughs> I mean, well, we are simians with iPhones these days. So yeah, um, absolutely. So yeah. one of my favorite books from college, again, in my closet anthropology studies, which doesn't exist. I made that up was guns, germs and steel. Did you read that? No, it's on my list. I mean, it's actually, I have stacks of books around the house that are on the list to read. That's a classic. It came out I want to say 25 years ago, maybe yeah, even 30 by this time. <laughs> this yeah. was the, in the 80s, the 90s, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so so it's one of the classics that I haven't had a chance to read, but uh, yeah, it's well, well known. So uh, I, I have to mention my listeners love when I've, you know, I have doctors on the show and I have to say, you're the kind of doctor that if someone says, is there a doctor in the house? You're one of those doctors. Yeah, I'll stand up. I'm a fa I'm family medicine, so I'll I'll whatever it is, chances are I've seen it or something very close to it, so I'm going to stand up. I I can't get out of it. So you went to Harvard Medical School. Did you know how you wanted to subspecialize or you just went there thinking I'm not going to be a zoologist. I'm not going to be an anthropologist. I'm not going to work at Wegmans. <laughs> Uh, I had an idea that I wanted to do family medicine. Uh, I, I worked with, uh, I volunteered, like shadowed with a really, really great family doctor at the University of Michigan during my senior year, during my exploration time at Michigan once I had gotten away from veterinary medicine. And I wasn't sure. I mean, I kept an open mind. I approached things like, you never know what you're going to find. And so, uh, again, I wasn't sure, but I, but I, but I had an idea I kind of considered everything I wanted to do, all of my different rotations, thinking, well, maybe this will be the greatest thing I've ever, I've ever done, I've ever experienced. So I definitely think that that helped me have a lot of fun. And certainly right. when you're with the ophthalmologist or the heart surgeon or the 
psychiatrist and, and, you know, you try to bring an attitude of, wow, maybe this is the greatest thing ever. They certainly love it because they think that what they do is the greatest thing that is, <laughs> exists. So right, it's, it's nice to have that attitude. But then, you know, about three years in and you have to start deciding and take your take your electives and narrow it down. And then I, I did some community based medicine as my as my clinic. And I was in a community based family medicine clinic in Somerville, Massachusetts, which at the time had the largest, this is just a non sequitur, but the largest concentration population of Brazilians outside of Brazil at the time. Yeah, weird, right? (laughs) That's random. It's random, but I'm telling you, it made for an amazing community. Um, For nine months, once a week, I would go there. I would work in the clinic with the the three family physicians and uh, residents and students were there. And it was such a blast. I mean, the doctors were really great to work with, but the patients were great and so funny and so warm. And they were always bringing food. And there were always like 12 family members at every visit for everything. And it it was, I had really never met any Brazilians uh, prior to that. And so- Wait, did you pick up some Portuguese? I did. In fact, <laughs> so I already spoke Spanish at the time because I had lived in Mexico for two years before that. And so I thought, well, I'll try to learn Portuguese. So I at the time, again, this is the 90s, I bought language tapes, actual, you remember those cassette tapes, right? Oh my God. Wait, wait, <laughs> with the pencil that you use to fix the, yeah, yeah, what a, exactly. yeah, yeah. So I'd go and I'd work out, I'm going to date myself here. I'm sorry. I would work out on the Stairmaster. Okay. Ooh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I put on my headphones with the cassettes of Portuguese and I would listen to those and then I'd go to clinic and what I had learned was like, I would like some more toast, please. <laughs> but somehow, you know, I was trying to learn Portuguese to use in clinics. So I would be learning the body parts. And if I didn't know it, I would, I would say the word in Spanish, or I would try to make it sound Portuguese. And the patients would laugh at me, but they more or less knew what I was saying. So we just had a really good time. And I said some super embarrassing things to the patients. Just, well, that's all. Yeah. If, if you didn't, it would be wrong. You have to be the embarrassing American <laughs> oh, yeah. who speaks Spanish but not Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was really fun. So I think, I mean, I'm pretty sure that that experience pushed me to family medicine because it, it really was exactly what family medicine is supposed to be. Like a community of doctors and then a, a community and then everybody taking care of each other as a community and having this great relationship with their medical facility. And, uh, and and it was great. It was, it was, and and just a lot of fun. So we're going to do a cliffhanger and talk about your shit happens story in the second half of the show. (laughs) But I want to learn more about your experience in family medicine across the zip codes that you're working in, because it's, it's very different and possibly even before the internet. Yeah, there was, well, there was internet at that time, but it was more like, I mean, there, there like were Friendster. No, yeah. Well, there was no, there weren't a smartphone. So you would have to go to a desktop and you could search something on the internet with very early versions of Yahoo or something like that. But, mm-hmm. um, and there was email, but, but it wasn't, um, you know, there, there certainly wasn't any digital communication. There were no apps or anything like that. Um, right. 
And then, so then I did my residency in family medicine in San Antonio. And I would say there was, there was still a lot of that community feeling in San Antonio. San Antonio is also a very friendly city. It's about 60% Hispanic, mostly Mexican-American, but also a lot of fifth generation, sixth generation Texans. I mean, Texas history is super fascinating. And my kids mm-hmm. know way more than I do because they went to, they're going to school here in Texas. I've had to pick it up after the fact. Uh, a lot of German immigration immigrants, you know, two, 200, 300 years ago to Texas. So super interesting mix, mixture of people and cultures here. So did my residency here and then stayed here and got married, had, had my kids in San Antonio and then started a practice right out of residency with a friend of mine from residency. And that's a whole crazy ride of trying, you know, being a brand new doctor and deciding, Hey, let's start a business and not really knowing what we're doing. (laughs) Famous last words. Yeah. All right, so we are going to be back with Beverly Savaleta to talk about her shit happen story because when the doctor gets the cancer is what this is all about. Stay tuned for some ads from y'all and all y'all. We'll be right back. <laughs> Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. When the doctor gets the cancer, I've done a lot of these shows. I have many friends that I grew up with who went into oncology and got sick. And interestingly enough, you mentioned San Antonio, the Texas AYA Cancer Conference that exists every year. I went at Stupid Cancer many, many years ago. A gentleman named Greg Ayun works at the local cancer center there, a young adult cancer survivor. Three of his colleagues, oncologists there, young adult cancer survivors. They had four young adult cancer survivor oncologists at San Antonio Cancer Center, which whatever the name was. It's it's the weirdest club within a club, right? Yeah. So when you were diagnosed with triple negative, I've heard you know, running joke, right? Running joke. 
Oh, it's triple negative. It must be fine. Right. <laughs> this is the case where negative does negative is not a positive. That's for sure. Exactly. Which is the chapter in your book I saw. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when the doctor gets the cancer, when the doctor can, you know, you have a, a sort of a, a possibly a stronger spidey sense of self about diagnosing and worrying about your own things, <laughs> misdiagnosing and self-diagnosing, probably a common theme amongst doctor friends of mine. Um when did you first notice something was weird and wrong and did you self-diagnose or did you trust someone else to trust you? I had already had several benign biopsies over the uh, few years prior to my cancer diagnosis. And that had put me into a higher risk screening pool. I had had something called fibroadenoma and I don't know how nerdy you want me to get with all this, but I guess your audience probably can go pretty nerdy on this. Uh, I would give them all that credit. Yeah, yes. I would imagine. So I actually had my first technically a lumpectomy when I was only 16 because I had some lumps that I felt at that time. So, and this is back in the 80s, they real, even ultrasound technology wasn't great. So they just took them out and they were benign. They were fibroadenoma. And I was followed just clinically, meaning I touched base once a year, once every other year at the breast clinic at University of Michigan. And I was just followed, uh, nothing was done. And then at age 35, I started having early screening because I was in this group. So this early screening, meaning ultrasounds and mammograms. Now, when you start doing screenings in in, in, a, in a woman who has already lumps and bumps, you're going to find stuff. So what happened was I, yeah. I got what I called, I got on what I would call the merry-go-round at, at that time. So then I, I had a biopsy probably every two years for the next seven, eight years. And, you know. Wait, were you just waiting for the shoe to drop? So. Kind of, because I, I mean, I also think I had basically every possible kind. I had a punch biopsy. I had an excisional biopsy. I had a CT guided biopsy. I had, the only thing I didn't have was an MRI guided biopsy, but I did have two MRIs, but I didn't really have a choice. I mean, the only choice would have been, well, I'm just not going to screen, which that's a whole nother podcast topic, but the whole issue of overscreening and over biopsying is, you know, has been debated like crazy over the past 20 years. My personal interpretation of all the data is that, well, obviously, if you don't screen, you won't find anything, but you're also going to kill a lot of young women. So I, even though I am the poster child for having lots of biopsies, I, I wouldn't have done it any other way because that's the only way you're going to you're going to find stuff. So I was also constantly doing my recommended self exams, which for me was actually only about every three months because you have to, for the sake of um, folks who are listening, you don't want to over examine yourself because if you don't leave enough time in between exams, you, you won't notice the difference. You have to leave enough time in between exams. And this is true, whether it's a, a scan of some kind or whether it's a physical exam, so that you'll notice a difference. So about every three months, I would do I would do my own breast exam. So I actually noticed something. So I, I had an ultrasound in October, that was clear. And then I did my own breast exam in February 
and I noticed something. I noticed a lump and I had noticed many lumps over the years. So I went ahead, I set up the, you know, set up the appointments and, and, um, by the time I went, I got it scheduled and coordinated. It was another probably three months before I got in, got scheduled, got an ultrasound, got a biopsy. So there was a lag, um, as these things sometimes occur. And I'll tell you, I honestly wasn't nervous about it because this was biopsy number seven or eight at this time. Right. You're immune. Yeah, I was, I was sort of numb to the process. I was like, pick up cat food at Target, check, go get breast biopsy, check. I mean, it, it was like just another to-do thing, thing on the to-do list. And so then when my primary care doctor actually gave me the news, it wasn't the right, I mean, different system hospitals and clinics have different ways of doing it. Sometimes it's the radiologist who might call you with the pathology. In this case, it happened to be my family doctor. And so when I vividly remember because he called my cell phone and I have his cell phone. We were, we're fairly close because he was one of my professors in residency. And when I saw his cell phone pop up on my cell phone, I remember thinking, Ooh, that's not good. Not that's good. not good. Not good. Um, and, and it wasn't, I mean, he, and he didn't beat around the bush. He's, he is a kind of a taciturn Cowboy. Ooh, SAT word of the day. Uh, <laughs> Hang on. SAT word of the go. day. Google taciturn, <laughs> folks. There you go. Yeah, he, he's like your classic kind of white boy cowboy from Texas. He doesn't say a lot, but he's going to give it to you straight. And he just said, well, Beverly, you got intraductal carcinoma, invasive. Let me set you up with the surgeon. Like, just like that, delivered, just boom. Very yep. deadpan, Texas right deadpan. Right out of the, just boom, right there. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> so that down the rabbit hole. Yeah, you down the rabbit hole. And honestly, getting the news, I think, was just as bad for me as anybody else. I mean, there's no emotional buffer by being right. a doctor. That is, it's like taking a cannon to the chest. I mean- you know, mm-hmm. I was, I was knocked down flat just like anybody else would be. I, I actually was at a friend's house and I, I, I told her because she was, she was physically there. And then I sat in the car and I called my husband, but I couldn't drive. I was too overcome. So, you know, people do ask me, how is it different for you? Because you're a doctor. But at that moment, I mean, I, I don't think being a doctor you were just a you're just a scared person. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Did being a doctor and knowing the system help you realize how absolutely fucked up it is in advance? Oh yes. Oh yes. On a, on the, <laughs> so you had one on advantage. The on the daily. I mean, I had many experiences where I was able to solve problems more quickly, logistical problems. And get things done because I, I knew how the inner workings uh, worked. And I would think, God, you know, uh, uh, in the famous words of the Christmas movie, son of a nutcracker. If I, you know, if I, <laughs> if I have trouble doing this, how does the normal layperson have a, have a chance, you know, that, you know, 
so I had a complication. I had a, a port put in my chest to get chemo. That was the first thing because my, my treatment did not have surgery first. I went straight to chemotherapy. So I had the port placed and then I had a complication and my lung collapsed later that afternoon. Oh, that's hysterically awesome. Yeah, it was definitely one of those. I love being a healthcare worker and that black cloud of, <laughs> of weirdness is just hanging over me. And I definitely diagnosed that one myself. That was that was yeah. a case of <laughs> that was a no brainer for a family physician. Yeah. <laughs> We're driving home and I tell my husband, honey, I think I have a pneumothorax. And I'm like, I'm feeling kind of dizzy in the car. And he's and he almost pulled off the highway. He's like, what? He's like, well, what does that mean? What like, what is that? I'm like, my right. lung is collapsing. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to go back to the hospital. I'm like perfectly calm telling him this. And, oh my God. and he's like, OK, well, we should go back. But here's but here's the terrible thing that I said, no, I'm starving. Take me home and make me an omelet before we go back. Oh, my goodness. That's that's perseverance right there. My goodness. But well I done. actually really wanted to eat something. I was like, if I go back, they're not going to let me eat for like another 12 hours. <laughs> so nice. So 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 the book, again, is Braving Chemo, What to Expect, How to Prepare and How to Get Through It. One of your chapters, speaking of like SAT words of the day, you use the word nader. Know your nader, <laughs> which I remember again, like there's apex, acme, apogee, zenith, and nader. <laughs> like that's all we had to know taking the SATs in 1992. <laughs> so it just it just stuck out to me, one of those chapters, because it's hard to recognize how shitty it is in giving people permission to be pissed and recognize this is going yeah. to suck. And you can't really lean into the suck unless you're kind of given permission by yourself and others to lean yeah. into the suck. But I wanted to focus one thing. You you you, you talk a lot about um, – I talk about like your, your metaphor of choice. Yes. Like the word survivor was invented in 1986 when the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship was sanctioned and gave it a word so we get a billing codes and re rehabilitation could, could exist. And that was reinforced in 1998 uh, with, with the Cancer Rehabilitation Act. But this idea of fight, survive, battle, survivor, journey – cure. All these words have become fridge magnet bingo these days. And I, I kind of let people pick their own because I'm not going to tell you what is and what isn't. But what, when did you come to sort of your own personal conclusion on what these words meant to you? Yes, th this is such a big question. It's so charged. I think so. I had trouble with. So when I was originally diagnosed, I felt like I was bombarded with the whole language of battle and fighting that, that kind of hit me in the face. And I did not want to accept that as the language or the metaphor for the experience that I was having. It, it did not feel like what was going on for, for me or inside of me. I, I, so, so while, you know, when my cancer was active and I was getting ready to start undergoing my treatment and I was in the beginning, you know, doing my treatment, I thought to myself and, and also to some of my friends as I was talking that I just, it just didn't seem like a battle to me. It's that seems, that seemed too violent for me. I want, I right. wanted to yeah, yeah. focus on healing. I needed to find something that felt nourishing and gentle and had to do with 
healing and recovery and moving toward health. Whereas I said, how can I have a battle? The problem is, is actually part of me. It came out of me. It's a part of me is sick. Am I battling myself? That doesn't seem like a good metaphor. I I just, it it didn't work for me. So what I personally tried to do was more of, um, almost like a sports metaphor, like getting ready for a challenge or getting my game face on, or, you know, as if I was, you know, training for the marathon. So for me, and this is, and this is mostly talking about while I was in treatment, I thought of it as, okay, if I'm going to get ready for chemo a couple of days before, I'm going to really make sure to try to think about what I'm eating and, and make extra sure to eat more as much as I can and more protein and pack my snacks for the road because we, we had to travel back and forth to San Antonio and just mentally think of it like I'm going to get ready for game day. I'm going to try to get my mental attitude because it's going to be, you know, it's going to be tough. I'm going to have to you know, go there and do the treatment. And then I'm going to feel, you know, really crappy for a few days after. And so it was really more like that, um, like a challenge or if you were, or if you were going to do a, like a long hike or something like that. So that was the metaphor that worked better for me. And then afterwards in the, in the week after chemo, when I was feeling really, really horrible and nauseous and not eating and, at one point I was so anemic that I was dizzy a lot. I could, I could not like, I could not walk or stand up very well. And then I would try to focus on healing. I was doing some yoga breathing and trying to just visualize my body healing and regenerating itself and those types of things. So that was really what I focused on. All of this speaks to the theme of your book, which is kind of like the life hacks and the lifestyle uh, versus the actual clinical medicine applications of the, you know, the biology and whatnot. There's so many cancer books on like what to do. This is kind of a field guide. And I want to wrap up by you helping our listeners understand what they can learn from your book. And uh, whether you're in the shit happens store, know someone in the shit happens store, or find someone who just entered the shit happens store, you have cancer. uh, What's the big takeaway of the book? The biggest takeaway is that in a time when you have very little control over what's happening, which is that your body has decided to make a cancer and you know, you, you really, a, you didn't cause it. You didn't have control over it. And you might have a little control over what treatment to do. Sometimes there are some choices and you should talk about that with your doctors and your treatment team. But for the most part, it's a time when you just don't have con- control and that feels so awful and talk about, you know, you're in the shit storm. I mean, you are in the shit storm. There are a few things that you can do that can help you feel better. And Braving Chemo tries to give you some tips and tricks to do that. And the number one overarching theme is to listen to yourself and to try to help you get in touch with your, with your heart really, and your center core and your center self, because I know it sounds corny, but I really believe that that is untouched by the shitstorm. I mean, that your, your self is still there and you can stay in touch with that. And that is so comforting. And so I hope that 
that's what people can take away from it. All right. Dr. Beverly Savaleta is a board-certified family physician, cancer survivor, and longtime advocate of patient education, uh, fan of Wegmans, <laughs> former Ithacan, almost zoology <laughs> veterinarian, and the author of Braving Chemo, What to Expect, How to Prepare, and How to Get Through It. Link in the episode descriptions. Beverly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Today. It's been a pleasure. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.